Hi everyone, Walter Bound here. Uh, first episode, uh, looking at rigorous classrooms. Of course, that rigor is uh, such an overused word, right? And it really depends on who's saying it. Um, I had a friend at a school who, in a, in a, in a meeting, uh, school meeting, this one AP history teacher was uh, uh, complimented on, uh, on student-centered, like this was the exemplar. This is AP U.S. history. A three-day lesson, drawing a cartoon of a um some u.s history event right which sounds great right okay uh creativity you know visually depicting um but you know three days of instruction where this is ap level that is not ap level i mean that might be a good homework assignment but the idea of rigor right like what skills are we enforcing how frequently are they writing? How frequently are they reading? What type of reading level? Or, you know, what are we having them read? Um, the, the level of public speaking, these types of things. Um, what's going on? You know, when you look, when you talk to people in college and 40% of kids have to take a remedial math or English class, um, that level increases at the community college level, at least in New Jersey, to about 60%. So, if this many students are leaving high schools needing this type of remedial instruction, what are, what are we doing as school districts that are, that are making kids spend a lot of money and parents a lot of money on instruction that's not going to their degree, right? So we need to look at like, okay, let's really look at what's happening in our classrooms because... Yeah, that kid, our, our, our son and daughter might have an A or a B in a class, but that might just be a paper A or B, right? They might not have done really anything um, or had any level of rigor, um, and they might have written a paper, and maybe they got 100 on it and wasn't even assessed, right? Um, and then we might have people who are assessing essays or doing the assignments that, you know, may need some help in learning how to assess and be able to see where the bar should be at the AP Honors, college prep, you know, uh, CP level kind of thing, right? Accelerated level, all these different levels. Well, all these levels, they're all called something, but what does it actually mean? So in this essay that was published in the Philadelphia Inquirer a few years ago, um, I look at, you know, what makes, what in my opinion, what makes for a rigorous classroom um, it's a lot of hard work. I mean, granted, it's a lot of hard work. And, of course, um, if you have 20 students in the classroom, that's probably pretty manageable for an English classroom. But when you get to 30, that's a lot of players on the field to manage. And, of course, when you have that many players, not every player is getting field time. Now, in another program, I'll talk about how to you know, maximize the playing time when you have classrooms that high. But, of course, you know, you could have you can have 10 students in a classroom and get so much feedback, but unless the teacher is willing to do the feedback or the administration is uh, encouraging or mandating or something, um, then it's just a bunch of smoke and mirrors, razzle-dazzle, you know, Chicago, and then lo and behold, these kids go into the world with not a clue how to write a sentence, how to do basic math, and what do they spend their whole time 18 years in school for, right? So 
This essay explores that if you have more ideas about what would make rigorous education. Oh, man, I'd love to hear. All right, thank you so much. What Would More Rigorous Classes Look Like? by Walter Bown. First published in the Philadelphia Inquirer, 2014. Rigor is the new buzzword in education. At least it was. But let's get beyond the buzz and create actual vigor that works. Right, so we have heard ad nauseum that student success in a rigorous course is the most important thing. But what does rigorous course say in English look like? What will help prepare students for college in the, quote, real world? How can we get students actively engaged in the pursuit of knowledge and not the pursuit of grades? Here are a few suggestions. Number one, independent reading. Why must the entire class be lockstep with the teacher's favorite? Why turn off reluctant readers with Silas Marner? A student will grow bored and despondent if Lexile reading level is too high or too low, and it oftentimes remains far too low for far too long to adjust to the rigors of college. My daughter Madeline in eighth grade was reading in class The Easy Tangerine, while at home she was reading The Adventures of Huckleberry Finn. She was bored in class. As adults, can you imagine being forced to listen to music that isn't suited to your sensibilities? Or a movie? More informational texts should also be available and encouraged. Students of mine have loved Bill Bryson, Hampton Sides, and Sebastian Younger. Studies show that boys gravitate toward nonfiction. My father-in-law, a retired Penn State professor with a PhD from MIT, reads various books per week. But guess what? Not fiction. And he's the smartest man I ever met. Number two. Students must write almost every day. It just makes sense. It's practice. Assignments should include various writing assignments, expository essays, narrative essays, creative nonfiction, rhetorical analysis papers, synthesis papers, short stories, writing free verse, and sonnets. Database questions, research papers, you get the idea. Not everything has to be picked over with a red pen. Oftentimes, teachers avoid assigning papers to avoid the avalanche of grading. Writing in class is like running on the field for practice. It builds confidence and skill for when the game does count. A valuable source for writing more and evaluating less is Peter Elbow's Writing Without Teachers. And it goes without saying, writing should not just be done in English class. It needs to be done in every class. Makes sense. Challenging reading, number three. Students should read challenging texts in its entirety, like an in-class analysis of satire of like A Modest Proposal or Persuasive Appeals in King's Letter from Birmingham Jail. Unfortunately, many new textbooks aligned with the, quote, common core standards. Content takes not just a back seat. It takes a trunk ride with extended activities and assessments taking the driver's role. In Windows and Mirrors, Steinbeck's Grapes of Wrath is reduced to, yeah, four pages. Thoreau's Walden is, wow, eight pages, a sip, not a long drink. Emerson's monumental self-reliance is reduced to a few shout-outs, or, you know, aphorisms. Civil Disobedience is cut to a single page. A single page? Civil Disobedience? A watered-down version would not persuade Gandhi or Martin Luther King. Is it any wonder that SAT reading scores are so low? Textbooks are not even necessary. It's available online. And as a side note, since we're talking about now, 
and this uh, was published in 2014, my AP scores um, 10 years ago were 4.1, 4.0. The average now is a 3.3. So something is happening, and something is not quite right. Number four, we should emphasize classical rhetoric. My AP students know the difference between anacolufin and anadolopsis. They can recognize anaphora and logical fallacies, like ad hominem. Well, at least I hope they can. They know how to create persona through ethos and create syllogisms to create sound, logical arguments. Hopefully, they can learn to deconstruct the complicated speech or essay and write an analysis of its rhetorical and stylistic devices. But this should be happening in all English classrooms, even at an early age. Why was it fine for tender Shakespeare to study the prose of Cicero and debate the definition of virtue? When did the paradigm change? Students like Emerson left Harvard at the same age as many children now enter Harvard. Rhetoric was the basis of classical educational training for since the days of Socrates. Why has it been reduced to a single AP class a junior year? It doesn't make any sense. It needs to be more than an empty word thrown about by politicians or spin masters. Let's make rhetoric great again. Sorry. Number five, give English teachers more college training in teaching writing. In college, the English and communication departments are separate. In my undergraduate classes, I never had a class that taught me how to teach writing. I'm a writer, so I know the process. But I cringe when I hear teachers and SAT prep, uh, test prep counselors preach formula writing. No writer ever begins wondering how many paragraphs to write. And guess what? The magic number is not five. Sorry. And what writer ever begins an essay, or ever ends an essay with, in conclusion, no one wants to be published. That's, that's who. Imagine Lincoln concluding the Gettysburg Address with, and in conclusion, no, of the people, by the people, for the people. Yeah, so much better. That's called epistrophe. Number six, give up vocabulary drills. Stress deep reading, writing, and debate. Perhaps the changes to the SAT will prompt high school teachers to rely less on vocabulary tests, and that is happening, I see that, um, at least for 60 minutes, and where the final grade is disproportionate. Hawthorne, Emerson, Cicero never opened a vocabulary book. They opened Homer, Euclid, and Cicero. Let me give you an example. Every night before bed, my daughter Nancy compiles a list of unfamiliar words. Last night it was bivouac, sherpa. Another night it was eclay, atrocious, rambunctious. This type of deep reading is where words are seen in action, not removed to the safety of the margins to be labored over for a hundred point test. The best advice for teachers given to me by a good friend is, it is best to be a guide on the side than a sage on the stage. Teachers step back, observe, and watch the wonders of a student-centered classroom. If you're working harder than the students, there is the problem. It's the players who are running and catching and dribbling and sweating, not the coach. Just some ideas. Thank you so much.